Thank you. Good morning, everyone, and thanks for attending the conference today on the state of the United States and what the future of the ANZUS Alliance holds. Uh, my name is Brendan Thomas Noon. I'm a research fellow in the Foreign Policy and Defense Program at the United States Study Center, and we're going to begin our last panel before the concluding session, which is on the transforming the Alliance for Collective Defense Challenges. This should be an exciting panel, and I hope to cover a range of topics from U.S.-Australia defense cooperation and regional defense strategy to how the U.S. and Australia can help build regional resiliency, partner capacity, and perhaps even some defense industrial base issues. Uh, first, our panelists will give five minutes each or so of framing remarks, and we'll have a moderated discussion before I open it up to audience Q&A. With that, our uh, panelists are Greg Morardi, the Secretary of the Australian Department of Defense, Greg served uh, in his role uh, since 2017, uh, and he's previously been the International National Security Advisor and the Chief of Staff to an Australian Prime Minister as Australia's Ambassador to Indonesia and Iraq, the Commonwealth Counterterrorism Coordinator, and in numerous senior roles in the Defense Intelligence Organization. Thanks, Greg, for being here. Next, we'll have Mike Goldman. Uh, Mike's been in Australia since March 2020, and after three years at the U.S. Embassy in Suva, Fiji, where he served as charge of the affairs and the chief, or sorry, the deputy chief of mission. And Mike, you've had a great and dynamic career in the US State Department around Asia. Uh, he recently served as, in Washington as deputy and acting director for China and Mongolia in the Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs. Uh, previous assignments have included Kathmandu, Hanoi, Tashkent, and Taipei. Thanks, Mike. Dr. Huang Latu. Dr. Uh, sorry, Hong is a senior analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, and previously she worked at the Corbell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University, the Institute of Southeast, Southeast Asian Studies in Singapore, and the Institute of International Relations in Taiwan. And finally, Ashley Townsend at the far end there. He's the uh, program director of the Foreign Policy and Defense Program at the U.S. Study Center. Uh, and Ash works on a variety of international security issues and strategic affairs with a focus on the Indo-Pacific, including regional alliances and partnerships, major power relations, regional security, deterrence, and Australian policy. And with that, we'll have Ash kick off and give some framing remarks, and then we'll go Greg, Mike, and Hong. Go ahead, Ash. Thanks, Brendan, and, and thanks to my colleagues up here for all of them taking the time today to speak with us about their views on our latest piece of work here at the US Study Center. I couldn't have hoped for a more esteemed uh, group of panelists, so thank you all sincerely. About 18 months ago, um, those of us at the Foreign Policy and Defense Program at the US Study Center released a major report called Averting Crisis that looked at the strategic position of the United States in the Indo-Pacific, looked at budgetary uncertainties within the US defense budget, and it made a case for why the US and Australia, working with other like-minded partners in the region, really needed to accelerate towards a collective strategy of regional defence and regional security in the Indo-Pacific. Because looking forward, it just would not be the case that the kind of post-1945 order that has been underwritten to a large extent by unilateral American power in the Indo-Pacific would not be sustainable in light of China's ongoing rise and growing assertiveness. If those judgments were not fully accepted at the time, I think it's now fair to say that they have more and more become the conventional wisdom in both Washington, Canberra, but also Tokyo and other countries. Uh, just last week, we heard the Senate Armed Services, uh, sorry, the House Armed Services Committee Chair talking about, Adam Smith talking about how the United States cannot spend its way into domination of China in the Indo-Pacific, and that in fact, it would be critical for the US to work with allies and partners. Admiral Davidson in Spruiking 
his bid for a Pacific Deterrence Initiative at Congress the other week also emphasised partnerships, alliances, coordination as being the essential ingredient to maintaining conventional deterrence in the Indo-Pacific. Um, our Defence Minister Linda Reynolds two years ago made the point at the Hudson Institute in Washington that deterrence is a shared responsibility that no country, not even the United States, can undertake alone. And of course, Biden's uh, interim national security strategy also emphasizes the importance of partnerships as a central pillar in US foreign and defense policy and talks about the need for pooling of resources, a term that is not often used in the Indo-Pacific context, is generally more used in the European NATO context, but I think also points to this understanding that as we do look to approach the shared challenges of deterrence and defense in the Indo-Pacific, there is a need for greater coordination and alignment and collective action. Um, Biden administration officials beyond the president, certainly in the Department of Defense, but also in the National Security Council, are more or less um, in favor of this agenda. There are barriers in the US system, there are barriers within the administration, and there are barriers within the context of coordination between countries. But broadly speaking, from the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kath Hicks, to the coordinator for the Indo-Pacific, Kurt Campbell, there is an agreement that an agenda towards federated or collective or a coalition defense model is needed for the region. Um, our own uh, national defense, uh, our own defense strategic update rather, again, views this as somewhat of a subtext to, a, to Australia's emphasis on expanding its contributions in the Indo-Pacific, both independently and in coordination with the Alliance and other like-minded partners. So the aim of our report in the section that looks at deterrence and defense in the Indo-Pacific is not to advocate tight integration between the US and Australia. It's certainly not to jump on the bandwagon of calls for an Asian NATO or a tight institutional arrangement that is just not culturally or strategically appropriate in this part of the region. What it is about is looking at focused ways and in some cases at ambitious and others in low hanging fruit sorts of ways where the Australia and the United States um, as individual countries and as an alliance can together deliver on operationalizing the alliance for a collective defense uh, 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 future. And in this way, at the beginning of a year, which will celebrate, I think, and we scrutinize ANZUS at 70, I think it's appropriate that we reflect on how the alliance needs to transform and how we need to not institutionalize it necessarily further, but certainly formalize and operationalize it for these things. So conscious of time here, I just want to pick out the eyes of three of the key recommendations that we make in the report. First, at the high end of the spectrum, if you look at the way that the US and Australia are increasingly coordinating in maritime domain awareness, in ISR sharing, but also in anti-submarine warfare exercises, both together and with third countries like Korea, Japan, and India, you can see that our level of ambition for high-end provision of deterrence effects should be set at the ASW uh, uh, future for the Alliance. This is again not to say that we need to move into tight integration in this regard, but it is to say that as we see growing Chinese strategic presence in the Indian Ocean, through the Indonesian archipelago in the Western Pacific, the need for the Alliance to revisit some of its earliest service level arrangements to broaden out a collective defense framework for subsurface and surface um, surveillance and, and, and anti-submarine warfare is both appropriate and possible. And we're seeing the densification of agreements that facilitate that. Second, at the lower, uh, the lower end of the spectrum, 
both Australia and the United States individually and yes, together have been doing a lot more to counter grey zone maritime coercion in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. And in the report, we look at some of those examples. But there is a need for greater coordination on this point. It is important that both countries don't uh, tread on each other's feet in some respect, but also that work together in ways that are more than the sum of their parts. And of course, that respond to regional sensitivities and preferences when it comes to countering grey zone coercion. Uh, more direct intelligence sharing and operational support with third countries in the region, as well as more progress on the sorts of fusion centres that we've seen discussed between the US and Australia are avenues for fertile policy advancement. And finally, uh, my colleague Brendan, moderator today's uh, 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 section of the report discussing how Australia and the United States should utilise a new force posture working group to maximum effect. Um, the last force posture working group uh, uh, round did not deliver a bespoke maritime security, naval or coast guard initiative for basing or placing US forces in rotational ways on this continent. And in light of this sustainment, uh, budgetary uh, repair and replenishment challenges that the US has in the Indo-Pacific, particularly further north, Australia is a useful location to examine some of those posture initiatives. So with that, I'd like to turn over uh, to, to Greg next uh, to hear your views on some of these issues. I encourage you all to, 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 to read the report. Thank you. Thanks, Ash, and go ahead, Greg. Thanks, thanks, Ash. Um, look, I, I, I just think it is a really useful uh, piece of work and um, commend people uh, to, to, to read it. Um, I was going through the statement following Osmin last, uh, last year and I refreshed uh, yesterday on what that said. And, and again, there's a lot of themes that you've picked up in, in, your, in your work that were, were touched on in, in, at Osmin last year, but are always part of the dialogue, the rich dialogue between the United States and Australia, particularly when it comes to defence and security issues. But I think from, from an Australian defence perspective, we believe that the Alliance does demonstrate and reinforce the positives of the rules-based order. Um, there, is, there is much about the Alliance that uh, helps establish the norms, reinforce the norms um, uh, that, that provide uh, peace and security in our region. But the focus of the Alliance is shifting, as you say, from where we've been heavily involved over the last several decades in, in the broader Middle East region uh, to the challenges of the Indo-Pacific and, and, and emerging great power competition is, is, is clearly one of those factors. Not the only factor that the Alliance will, will follow, uh, focus on in, in years to come, but uh, clearly, uh, and Prime Minister and our, my minister have made, made it clear that that sort of growing competition, growing uh, friction in many cases between the United States and China is, is going to be a, a factor for all of the countries of the Indo-Pacific region to, to take into account and to, um, to react to in the years to come. In our focus on the Indo-Pacific is not going to be exclusive. The government has said that the ADF needs to remain a global, globally deployable force, that we need to be able to uh, cooperate on, on CT and, and natural disaster issues beyond our region, and particularly to be able to contribute to US-led coalitions in other parts of the world. But our focus needs to be the Indo-Pacific, and that is where we in defence need to be able to make the most uh, comprehensive and the most significant contribution to our alliance. 
I think it is also, and the, the government made it clear last year, it, it's also a region where, particularly in the South Pacific with our colleagues and friends in New Zealand, we need to have, in some cases, a responsibility to lead. It's, it's not a, a matter of, of, of wishing for continued US leadership in all places under all circumstances. I think we, we have accepted that we do uh, need to step up in the South Pacific and, uh, and there, while we really do appreciate the ongoing contribution of the United States, Japan and other partners, we do accept that Australia and in, 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 in often with New Zealand have a responsibility, a unique responsibility in the Southwest uh, Pacific. <clears throat> But in the Indo-Pacific region, where we are going to put our focus in, in, in decades to come, we need to be the most capable of uh, cooperating multilaterally and with the United States. So we need to continue to operationalise the alliance, particularly in the Indo-Pacific region. That means being able to work with the United States at some of the shaping activities, at presence, uh, defence diplomacy, but also uh, preparing and developing capabilities for, uh, for high-end conflict should ever uh, that unfortunate circumstance come about. So we are going to be continuing to work with uh, the United States on that full range, uh, that full range of defence capability development that is going to be important for the Alliance. And OSMIN, I think, last year heightened our shared commitment uh, to building these capabilities, the force posture work that we've agreed to do uh, to look at how we can uh, use, uh, be, be in places together. And in some cases, we'll be with the United States. In some cases, we'll work uh, multilaterally with other partners and minilaterally. So we, we're, we're doing more with, with Indonesia. We're doing uh, more activities with Japan, the United States and Australia. We're looking to, to develop our defence relationship with India, which has strengthened in the last couple of years. So, But in terms of with, with the Alliance across a whole range of spectrums, uh, um, activities from uh, lower end, less complex operations to those, those complex operations that we, that we test at uh, Indo, um, at RIMPAC, uh, you know, talisman, sabre series of exercise and other uh, exercise where we really do practice a very complex multi-domain multi uh, warfighting um, operations. And our relationship with Indo-PACOM uh, uh, based in Honolulu is going to continue to develop. Um, it would be the case that almost every day of the year we're doing something with some of the elements force assigned to uh, to Indo-PACOM, and that's a that that is a really great relationship that we value very much. Opportunities for greater collaboration, and many of them are touched on in uh, in the paper. But I think the development of more strategic capabilities to enhance the ADF's ability to operate with the United States Armed Forces but also to build self-reliant deterrent effects that the government set out in its, uh, in its policy documents last year. Sort of. So we, we certainly want to be able to operate with the United States, but we also want to be able to deliver uh, in years to come self-reliant self deterrent effects. That does not in any way suggest 
any shifting away or a lack of confidence in the, in the alliance. It, it's really, I think the government has said, though, no, Australia does need to focus on its, its ability to generate effects in a self-reliant, in a more self-reliant way. At the same time, we're going to continue to rely very heavily on the United States, including uh, over industrial uh, collaboration, this industrial-based collaboration that, again, the report talks about, and uh, doing, doing work around maintenance, repair, overhaul, but also the production of, of, uh, of sophisticated systems in Australia where we will work with the United States to develop, do some of that work. Um, hypersonics is an area where we've had great collaboration with the United States and we'll continue to invest in that precision guided munitions, uh, but also some of that sustainment capability that is often not as focused on uh, when announcements are made, but it's that ability to sustain, repair and get platforms back uh, into operational activity that is, 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 is often more of a, a a signal about self-reliance than simply building uh, a, a platform at home. So what we're looking to do is partner with the United States to deepen the operational uh, level of, of alliance activity, but we're also very much uh, of the view that it's that broad, it's that multi-dimensional nature of US power that in many ways is appealing in the Indo-Pacific. People are obviously very conscious of shifting power balances, but everywhere I've been in the region, I continue to reach out uh, to regional counterparts. Uh, they say, we want the United States to be a player in the region in the long term. Uh, and it is often, it's the multidimensional nature of US power that has been uh, so uh, consequential. It's the cultural power, the economic power, the power of US institutions, corporations, uh, it's people-to-people -people links. I think that people also want to see it's, it's not just the awesome capabilities that Indo-PACOM uh, bring to the, to the military balance in the region. And I think Australia certainly welcomes that deep and multifaceted US engagement uh, in the region. But there are, there's uh, challenging times ahead and, and certainly in defense, we believe that our alliance relationship will remain a very central part of responding to those challenges, but Australia accepts the responsibility to do more, to be more self-reliant and to play in our region in particular, a leadership role when, uh, when, that when uh, asked to do so and when regional partners feel that that's appropriate for us. Thanks, Greg, for those comprehensive comments. Mike, if you want to take it away. All right, terrific. Um, thanks, Brendan. Thanks, Ash and Greg, those terrific remarks. and. I just like to say um, um, I endorse them in their entirety. <laughs> so I'm done. Um, <laughs> Simon, I'd, I'd like to thank um, you all for uh, putting on this, this ter terrific um, this terrific event. I feel a little bit awkward sitting in the unique <laughs> yeah. red chair here. Um, I've, I've served in countries in, in around the world, as, as I'm sure you are, where um, being in the unique chair is the most dangerous place to be. So I hope this is. <laughs> accidental um, and symbolic and not a sort of foretaste of what we're in for. Um, in any case, um, I've, I've read the report. It's a terrific report. You know, over the course of my career, I've read dozens of think tank reports, and some of them have a, a half-life of about 
20 minutes or a half hour. This, this one will endure and I think it's really consequential and it comes at an important time. Um, I think a lot of the um, recommendations that Ash just put forward, they're gonna directly inform um, the process of deliberations leading up into Osman and they'll um, directly inform a lot of our strategic thinking going forward. The other thing that Greg mentioned just now is um, Australia um, standing up its own sort of autonomous, um, uh, powerful uh, capability itself. It's not reliant on the United States. I'd just like to say we welcome that wholeheartedly. I think that it's not any sort of zero sum thing where it detracts from us. In fact, it enhances our ability to work collectively and also work individually. Um, and the reason this is, is because as fellow democracies, as alliance partners that have um, shared you know, decades of history, we see the world in much the same way. We have unique capabilities, we have unique geographic responsibilities, but the fact that we're interoperable, but at the same time we can stand alone, I think is all to the good. And so I, I really endorse um, that. Look, um, the other thing about the report that I like is I like the subheading where it says an evolving alliance agenda. I mean, that's very smart. It's not a throwaway line because, you know, the, the world changes, the international system evolves, countries themselves change, and I'd say sometimes um, for the better. And there are emerging challenges that require new um, responses, both individually and, um, and collectively, bilaterally, but also in terms of Minilateral groupings and um, through the um, international system, through the sort of um, multilateral groupings that we have. Um, when we were talking about the challenges that we face together, my staff and I, we had a little brainstorming session and it was daunting. You know, we talked about pandemics, um, the escalating climate crisis, cyber and digital threats, um, international economic disruptions, protracted humanitarian crises, violent extremism, terrorism nuclear and other mass weapons of mass destruction proliferation. It's enough to make you want to pack it up and go home. But then when you, you sort of stop panicking, you realize we actually are equipped to deal with these. We're equipped to deal with, with these sort of as a matter of our national character, but also as a matter of practice. Um, we're in, I think, a very good place. We can talk about how we need to repurpose things, how we need to redouble efforts, how we need to um, find new direction and sort of working purpose. But I think we also should recognize that as nations in a liberal rules-bound international order, we actually have done quite well and I'm confident that we will continue to do well um, dealing with this whole list of crises or challenges that I um, just, mentioned, just mentioned here. And then, you know, animating all of this, informing all of this is the, um, the challenge of strategic competition, which you mentioned. I think that every one of these things that I mentioned, you know, there's an obvious um, uh, strategic aspect to it. I'd just like to um, reframe one thing. When you talk about uh, great power competition um, as between the United States and China, I'd like to just reframe, reframe it in a couple of ways. One, to the extent that there's competition, I wouldn't say it's binary, I'd say, um, we are enmeshed with a group of like-minded partners and allies who see the world through the same sort of democratic lens. You know, we value free society, we value free markets, we value a fair go, um, whether it's you know, enforcing the maritime commons or whether it's um, in international trading regimes. Um, so I think it's not just a binary thing. 
The other thing um, is that it's not always competition. You know, um, there's no aspect of the human condition where China doesn't have a role, doesn't have, a, and we're not implacably opposed to working with China constructively where it makes sense. Um, you know, talk about climate change, talking about pandemic response. This sort of thing is gonna require a clear-eyed um, um, approach to China that isn't always competitive. But I would say that it is always gonna be realistic um, and that it's gonna be something that we do in concert with our allies and with our um, partners. Because allies and partners really are, are you know, their secret sauce, they're the force multiplier. Um, and they set us apart from our strategic competition. Um, there's no better example currently, I would say, than the Quad. Um, as Ash mentioned, it, you know, this, this, unlike Europe, this is not a region of the world that has NATO-like um, structures. Um, instead, we have strong bilateral alliances that overlap, and then we have these sort of emerging purpose-built or flexible minilateral arrangements. Um, you know, it's useful to remember that the Quad initially came out of, what, a couple decades ago, a, a collective response the, to the tsunami. Um, at the recent Quad leaders meetings, we talked about having a similar response to um, the COVID pandemic, um, you know, a similar response to dealing with climate change. Um, so I think this is, this is an enormous source of strength. And it's just one example. We, you know, we have the five eyes and you know, we have the obvious core function of the five eyes, but then we have an opportunity both with our five eyes partners, but then also with other like-minded democracies to um, talk about you know, free trade, to talk about um, climate action, to talk about all sorts of stuff that's of um, use. You know, the five eyes, we have G7 plus, we have the notion of a democracy 10, um, we have the president's um, idea, um, vision of a summit of democracies. There are two things that are in common to all these groupings, I'd say. One is that um, the participants, by and large, are all committed to free societies, and they're, they're open societies, they're democracies. The other thing that I'd say that um, is in common is Australia is at the core of all of them, um, which is commendable and something that I think is worth noting. Um, together, we and our allies and partners are recommitting to a shared vision um, for an Indo-Pacific that's um, free and open, but also resilient and inclusive. Um, on defense, which is not exactly my forte, but it's the subject of this panel, which I think is why I'm in this chair. Um, <laughs> we're, we're committed to approaching security from a position of strength. Um, we're gonna, we're committed to making smart discipline choices about our national defense and the responsible use of our military while also recommitting to um, having diplomacy as the tool of first resort. Um, so that, I think that's something, it's not just a shift in tone, it's a real shift in priority and of, um, of consequent emphasis. Um, we're committed to working with Australia and our partners to forge new agreements on emerging technology, space, cybersecurity, health, um, climate, the environment, um, human rights, um, I see we're already down to 17 minutes, so I'm gonna not go through this page. Um, <laughs> and instead, I, I'd just like to conclude um, by saying that, you know, this is, this is a moment of real opportunity. We face considerable challenges, but we've faced considerable challenges as partners, as mates before. I have every confidence that we'll continue to do so and 
we have another panelist who's going to deliver interesting remarks, and then we have questions. So I think I'll just leave it with that, with a note of optimism and a, with a note of thanks to the um, conference organizers. Thanks, Mike. You've really yeah. seen through us with that chair. I think, <laughs> today, so. Paul, if you want to. Thank you, yeah. thank you, Brendan, and thank you to my co-panelists. Um, we've been talking about the alliance, the strength of Australia and the U.S. alliance, and a lot of remarks have mentioned the region in the Pacific, Southeast Asia, and their interests. Well, I think um, my role here is to bring what are the voices and demands and, and needs in the region and how the alliance can support that. We know that uh, Southeast Asia is very, very diverse, and in my view, actually, post-pandemic will be even more diverse in terms of security interests. Um, so in the five minutes, I'll give uh, the full uh, justice to the very um, diverse region. In, in any ways, I'd like to say that, you know, really Southeast Asia is at the core of the Indo-Pacific. Both Greg and Max mentioned of great power competition. Southeast Asia really is at the epicenter of the great power competition. Uh, when the Indo-Pacific concept made a return, um, it was actually in Southeast Asia that it was the main arena of pronouncement of different Indo-Pacific concepts. President Trump uh, did it first in Da Nang, in APEC, in Vietnam 2017. Subsequently, uh, we have many of Indo-Pacific concepts developed and pronounced in Shangri-La dialogues in Singapore and across different regional um, summits uh, and platforms. So really, it is not only uh, an arena of focus, but also where those concepts are being communicated to greater Indo-Pacific. And that's why it's also important to bring Southeast Asian voices into um, uh, the discussion, not only as the arena of pronouncement of that, um, of those concepts. And by now, ASEAN centrality become really a constant in all of statement within the quad that we saw last week. Um, it was uh, the second point that the leaders has referred to the support for ASEAN centrality in everything, um, in all those efforts. So really Southeast Asia is, is really important. And for Australia, Southeast Asia is next door. It's the reality that you can't look away, right? But what is, uh, what is now developing, I think we can't really discuss about um, the support and the value of the alliances in Southeast Asia without mentioning the C word, and I will mean it COVID. Because um, Southeast Asia will look very different after COVID. I think primarily already now, some countries have um, shown signs of uh, defense budget spending. We're talking about uh, defense in particular. And if COVID and uh, effect of COVID is going to be even worse than Asian financial crisis and probably much more prolonged, uh, then I think choices for capability for resources allocation and upgrade um, and update will be very, very limited and there will be ma many competitive priorities for Southeast Asians. Not all will be able to bounce back from the COVID um, in an equal timing. Uh, I think Vietnam and Singapore are tracking pretty okay and they're both countries that are very committed also to security. Uh, issues and probably we, we won't see much of defense cut in those two countries, but we already had uh, heard about cases in Thailand uh, early into the pandemic of um, uh, cancelling some procurement. So I think uh, in the long term, South East Asia might be more vulnerable because of that growing gap 
uh, in defense capability and also um, ability to put resources in um, all aspects, including, for example, uh, maritime security. We also know that since pandemic, we've got a lot of more cases of piracy um, and non-traditional security uh, incidents in the region. Um, so I think those are some areas where both Australia and US can, uh, can contribute to. Um, another point I wanted to make is um, about uh, how great and, and like-minded and interoperable Australia and US uh, alliance is. And it took, what, 70 years to get there. There's nothing, anything similar in Southeast Asia in this kind of uh, level of compatibility. And even though US has alliance, treaty alliances in the region, in Philippines and Thailand, and they're more or less the same um, uh, as old, but uh, it's fair to say that Australia's US relations are much more deeper um, and much more integrated in, in many aspects. So what, the, what does it mean to the region? Possibly three reactions or anything in between. First of all, we want that. We want what you have got with US. Second of all, if it comes from um, Thailand and Philippines, why, why don't we get that? And third of all, um, if, if there could be also for the more skeptics, um, what are Australia and US wanting to do in the region without us? What are the intentions? So there's a spectrum and anywhere going from these three kind of responses. So in terms of recommendation, uh, what Australia and US can do and could do in the region, I think um, all sensitivities uh, should be paid to those, uh, to those feelings of, of the partners in the region. Um, having said that, uh, I think it's quite interesting for me to read the interim national security strategic guidance uh, from US coming recently because um, the two treaty allies, Philippines and Thailand, didn't get much of mention. But um, new partnerships, uh, like for example with Vietnam, or all partnership with Singapore did get a mention. So it's a very varied picture, uh, just to end on that note, and that and uh, whether what kind of reaction or kind of need will be uh, very different depending on which actor we're talking about. And um, I, my own view is that there Here is, we go. the demand is huge. There will be demand on many, many things. Everything okay, is thanks. in demand now. Exactly. with limited resources but it is really up to australia and us to pick on really the key ones where uh, quality of, of difference can be made because um it's it's impossible to um to really do, uh, meet all southeast asian partners in all aspects of demands so that's a that's a bad news but the good news is um i, I think uh the the threat perception uh, is in the region is also changing and it's changing fast, given that many, if not majority of security incidents are happening in Southeast Asia. That's great, so. thanks Wong. Um, I'm gonna use moderator's power. We were gonna do a bit of a moderated discussion, but we've got a hard stop in about nine and a half minutes. So I'll just go straight to audience Q&A, if that's all right. So if anyone has a question, please raise their hand, state where they're from and address it to the panel. Is there any questions from the audience? Oh. Yes, thanks. Let's wait for the mic, yeah. 
Thanks very much. Hi there, I'm Nancy. I'm with the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Uh, I edit Australian Outlook. Uh, Hong, I thought that was a really interesting point about the US alliance with Australia versus with Thailand and the Philippines. Uh, can, that, can you talk about that a little bit more? Like why, why beyond the cultural similarity has the prioritization of the US alliance in Australia been so pervasive over the past however many years it's been, I know it's been 70, 70 years now, but I don't know at what point the prioritization really ramped up to the level that it is now. How is that different from what's from the priorities in Thailand and the Philippines? Um, yes, I think um, I did a little bit of study on what like-minded means <laughs> because I was very intrigued when it started to be used a couple of years ago. And um, in, in my uh, chart of different meanings, where it is used and in what context, I think uh, um, the Philippines and Thailand primarily, there were very few like-minded boxes. Uh, it's that the same take, thing. Um, especially in, the... In, in, in the recent years. Okay. I think the development of the alliance is very different. Um, and mainly in the, in the recent years, it comes to domestic politics, very much so. Uh, something that uh, we not fully always appreciate in the full strength of it. I think it's not the recognition of Australia in Australia of US importance and the recognitions of the importance of the alliance here in Australia bipartisan. We can nowhere find something like that either in Philippines nor in Thailand. Of course, they are important in the security architecture, but in in the consciousness both of the political elites as well as leading elites as well as you know um, intellectual elites I, I don't think that level has reached anywhere that close and of course the issues of domestic change in the in the leadership in thailand after the coup of course and president duterte in philippines so they are the key really turning uh, drastically i mean that has been a trend for uh, some time and uh, some have done really good research on also uh, the growing influence within the military of thailand and also philippines other partners in the region for example china uh, and that would be another factor uh, but but really it's a key the key uh, point i would uh, the key role i would point to is is recently is the change in the leadership in both those countries thanks uh gary be great thank you thanks uh, brendan great panel great uh, insights thanks all of you I'm interested in the, um, uh, uh, the discussion around um, obviously industrial collaboration and, and defence collaboration generally. And uh, Greg, you talked about the, the, the big ambition that's in the strategic update and the FSP to, um, to accelerate that um, industrial capability, the self-reliant capability uh, underpinned by deeper industrial capability. Uh, of course, Brendan's uh, chapter in the report talks about some of the countervailing uh, domestic um, uh, uh, elements in the US that, that, that uh, might, might uh, be a bit of a break on that. So I'm interested in, in uh, Greg and Michael, your view on, on how to create that, um, that greater urgency, the, the, the strategic imperative around um, particularly uh, issues like technology transfer to, to build that greater capability in Australia in support of um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the shared objectives in the Indo-Pacific. I think success will reinforce success. 
So I, 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 I agree we're not at a transformational point yet, but we are. In particular, if you look at the success of Australian companies contributing to the Joint Strike Fighter, the F-35 program, I think when, when I talk to um, uh, senior officials in the United States and, and members of defence industry over there, that they're conscious of this. Um, they're conscious of some of the Australian companies that are uh, successful in the United States. And so, from my perspective, it's it's what what can I do as the Secretary of Defence to support successful Australian companies get more more of a presence and build that out in the United States. Um, we we've got there is goodwill, but again, it's it's a very complex. It is a very complex system. But um, I I do like the idea of of getting a couple of examples and just making that happen, making it succeed, and then being better at publicizing mm. the success of that. So I'm, I, I am optimistic, but I don't, uh, I don't anticipate that there will be massive growth in the, in the industrial base cooperation, but there's some really uh, compelling circumstances. And, and, um, and so I think, I think the awareness of the need to do this is, is growing and we, we in Australia uh, need to just look at what we can do to make sure that decision makers in the United States are conscious of what Australia can bring to that, but also in the Australian context, what those links between US primes and an Australian collaboration and partnership might mean for our ability as well to build that resilience and, um, and supply chain uh, assuredness as well. So I, I think that's a good point that um, that you you take a couple three case studies where you can argue in really concrete terms that their successes both in terms of uh, strategic interests but also just in terms of jobs technology transfer and um, economic growth and then you can move from that to the general principles which then hopefully will translate to more uh, collaboration. You have a really able staff with um, your, your embassy, your defense attaches in Washington who can make that case on, in the same time zone with, um, with the United States. The other piece of it too is I'd say that there's um, an increasing realization with supply chains, you know, in critical min minerals in particular, that um, self-reliance isn't just an individual state sovereign um, capability. It's looking at um, supply chains that are resilient and defensible, but among allies. Um, so I think there, there are discussions that need to be ha had in Washington, but I think here too, if we can have concrete cases that we can point to where it has strategic benefit, but also economic benefit, I think it will be to the good. Ash, did you have any comments on this? Yeah, just to, to take it to maybe a, a slightly broader level, um, I think if you analyze the problems, Brendan, that you've written at length about over the last few years at the center with regards to you know, implementing the national technology and industrial base between the US and Australia, when you analyze the problems, they ultimately come down to politics. So to preferences in congressional, in congressional districts for development and jobs and industry in those districts, as well as to ITAR and export controls. And those same obstacles in, in the case of the former are also what's uh, impeded, and this is not a new phenomenon, the United States from moving faster from legacy military systems to advanced capabilities to modernization. 
These are familiar talking points for all senior US military and defense officials, and they have been for more than, for as long as anyone can remember. So as we think about systems competition in the Indo-Pacific, and if we think about not only the need for us to optimize for strategic competition, but the need for us also to demonstrate that our domestic systems of governance, that our domestic systems of doing business are effective and up to the task and worth emulating. I think that adds an additional burden and an argument and narrative that could resonate for why it is so important that with a committed US administration now uh, in place or coming into place that wants to transform a lot of these things, transform democracy, transform the United States um, economic and technological base, which is the heart of its power, transform the US military and optimize it for these things along with US partnerships. It's really important that I think woven into that is this narrative about this is about how we can ensure that our system is not only effective, but is seen to be effective and is therefore seen as a model in a part of the world where, frankly, that's becoming more important for a range of reasons. And my two cents on this just briefly is one of the few nerds outside of government that probably delve into defense industrial cooperation between the United States and Australia, <laughs> it's a very specific topic. Um, is, it's also a cultural change too. Uh, it's important to, uh, you know, as the United States has shifted out of the Cold War, R&D has globalized, there's increasing capability that is as good if some in niche areas as better than what the United States has in its own defense industrial base. That wasn't the case in the Cold War. So that system, that export control system, ITAR and all the other arrangements around it and how defense primes have evolved are sort of still stuck in that old kind of model. And it hasn't evolved to uh, kind of the more, you know, slightly more multipolar, but also the way the United States is now thinking about revitalizing and incorporating its alliances. And we're still, I think, paying, playing catch up a bit in the US system about trying to figure out, all right, what does that new model look like of industrial cooperation with allies? Um, and a big part is one that I've said to uh, lots of American interlocutors that come through is saying, you know, listen, there are good pieces of tech, we need to demonstrate them and sell them to kind of start to make that cultural strategic change in the United States about how they view um, that R&D cooperation, defense industrial cooperation, um, and to show them because increasingly allies will just go around them too. Uh, we increasingly sell things to the United, or the United Kingdom, they sell to us, Canada, um, will simply probably eventually continue to go around the US market then work with it if it's, uh, I think, uh, the barriers remain as they are. Listen, we're time up, I'm sorry. Uh, we have a hard stop. Uh, please help me thank Ash, Greg, Mike, and Hong for a great panel.